Uh, welcome to uh, another podcast. Um, I'm here today with uh, Dr. Damien Kelly, who's a consultant cardiologist at the Royal Derby Hospital. And today we're going to talk about uh, angina. Uh, hi, Damien. Thanks for coming. Thanks, John. Um, thank you for the invite. Oh, it's, it's good good to have somebody not surgical along. <laughs> um, now, so angina, um, I suppose we ought to start with a definition. How would you define angina? Yes, yeah, so one of the most striking things about angina pectoris um, or chest pain of presumed myocardial ischemic origin is that there is no universally accepted definition. Um, <laughs> good start. Good start. <laughs> so one of the best definitions, and this is the only segue into ancient history that I'll give you, is from uh, someone called uh, Heberden, who's famous for the osteoarthritic nodes. Uh, I went to medical school with him. Did you? <laughs> you don't look You don't look it. Um, so in, in 1786, he did a, a, a speech to the Royal Society, and there's a, there's a proceedings a bit like the Hansard of the Royal Society where he gives an absolutely perfect description of angina. It was also the first time he coined the term angina pectoris. So it was a bit like the first description of, of AIDS in the, in the uh, late 1980s. It had never been seen before. Uh, and if you Google Heberden angina, you get an absolutely perfect description. Uh, but the characteristic of angina really is the onset and periodicity of the chest pain. Mm. So medical students are fond of the odd acronym. And we're, you're aware of the acronym Socrates for mm-hmm. site onset character radiation. That's useful, but in terms of differentiation, onset and periodicity is really the most important feature. Mm. So whereas between individuals, angina, the character of the pain can differ greatly, mm. um, the defining feature is that it comes on with exertion, sometimes emotional stress, and is relieved with rest um, in that having a fixed coronary artery stenosis, you really have to have a tachycardia, a fast heart rate, in order to for the muscle demand of oxygen to outstrip the supply. Mm. Uh, myocardial pain lasting for more than about 30 minutes usually results in infarction, and therefore a history of pain of constant intensity for a very long period of time, two or three, four hours, it becomes increasingly less likely to be of myocardial ischemic origin. Mm. So it's really onset and periodicity are the hallmarks of angina, but there's no single definition. So angina is chest pain uh, of quite a short, certainly less than 30 minutes duration, which is typical of, as as much as it can be typical of, ischemic chest pain. Yeah, so it's appropriate to mention the textbook description of angina, and Heberden used the term strangling, which I think is a fantastic Mm. word to use. So there's a... um, it is usually a constrictive, heavy pressing sensation around the osteronai centre of the chest, often band-like. Um, there's Levine's sign, which is a clenched fist brought up to the chest to mm. uh, describe the pain. But it's usually a constrictive, heavy pain mm. rather than a sharp, transient discomfort. Um, one of the more useful differentiating features is radiation to the jaw or teeth. And I think if patients volunteer radiation to the jaw as part of their exertional pain symptom, then that's really quite highly uh, discriminatory. Um, But it varies greatly between the individual. So one person's angina could be interscapular. You can get angina affecting the elbow regions, the lower arms and one or other side. Um, So it can be highly variable. Toothache on its own, isolated tooth discomfort. Um, And the other thing is in the individual, him or herself, it tends not to change. So if one had documented angina years ago, which was rather atypical, that symptom's unlikely to change within that one individual person. Okay. So, so you, you've got to have quite a high index of suspicion. You do. And the, the old adage is any pain from the from the uh, nipple to navel 
um, could be ischemic. Right. Okay. And then there's, you know, there is stable angina and there's unstable angina, isn't there? Sure. So again, uh, at the risk of sounding rather vague, there's no absolute definition of either, but the definition is a little bit better defined for unstable angina, and it's very simple. Firstly, it's a clinical diagnosis, mm-hmm. purely clinical diagnosis, and secondly, it's any change in previously stable symptoms in a person with a diagnosis of angina, um, or any new onset angina, so which makes things slightly difficult, because mm-hmm. any new onset angina is by definition unstable. So you don't need any fancy machines, you can diagnose it sitting next to someone on the bus. Mm-hmm. Sudden onset ischemic pain, out of the blue is unstable angina, or if someone previously had angina, stable angina, say Canadian Cardiovascular Society class 2 angina, which would be angina walking more than a block or walking up more than a single flight of stairs. If they suddenly got angina rising to turn the TV on and off, I don't know if anyone does that anymore, but if they mm. got suddenly onset with minimal exertion, that would be unstable. Okay, so it's not, as I was taught as a medical student, angina coming on at rest? It can be, but it's a bit more subtle than that. Yeah. Is any sudden change. Okay, okay, I think uh, we talked about the the, the history uh, yeah. in the definition, but what, what about risk factors? So we have to have a low index of suspicion, but so you've got this episodic <clears throat> pain that's repeated identically in somebody time and again, yeah. And but what would make you think, I wonder if this is angina rather than other causes of these kind of pains? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. The, 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 we'll come back briefly to the, unstable, the, the consequence and importance of unstable angina, mm-hmm. but yeah, you've got to try and make a, a risk profile assessment so you can... To, to help guide you. Um, age, male gender, and then the standard big risk factors, um, cigarette smoking, mm-hmm. uh, presence of diabetes mellitus, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and a family history. And there's various definitions that most people accept a, a diagnosis of angina in a first-degree relative under the age of 55. So that's a little bit stricter than many people think of as family history. Mm-hmm. Um, the gender is important, but postmenopausal women are thought to reach a similar level of risk five years after the menopause to to men. Um, so having a, having function over is protective. Against. It's thought to be protective. Yeah. Estrogen is thought to be protective, um, and we use this. We'll come on a little bit to investigation, but we use this in terms of the initial risk, uh, the initial assessment of of chest pain is very much based on one's pretest probability, mm. and. One thing to remember is if you're over 70, you're male and you've got typical symptoms, you've got a greater than 90% chance of having a functional coronary artery stenosis. So mm. um, that's now enshrined in the guidelines with very early recourse to coronary angiography in that group of patients, mm. over 70 male typical symptoms. Um, for the purpose of a simple way of thinking of typical and atypical, if you think it in three ways, typical characteristics, that's a heavy pressing feeling, uh, onset with exertion and relief by rest. And if you have all three of those, that's typical. Mm. Um, and we, we do use that very much to guide our, who we investigate. All right. And what proportion of people it presents are typical? Um, it's a very good question. Depends on your age group. Oh. Um, I think of, of middle-aged men, I, actually, I, I think this is just thinking from my own experience, probably two-thirds. Okay. And for elderly females, probably two-thirds aren't. Yeah, so there's a big group of people where... It's not that classic triangle. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and what what's actually happening at the at the coronary artery level then? Yeah. So you're, um, there used to be a talk I had where it there was a slide with skeletal muscle, yeah. and it was a picture of a trabant, and there's a picture of the myocardium, which was a, a Lamborghini Huracan. We could say now it's a, a very fast sports car. 
So the the, the, the mic- Trabant isn't for people that weren't Trabant's- around in the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yes, if anyone's listening in uh, countries that made the Trabant, I'm terribly sorry. But uh, the the point is, there's a forty-fold difference in peak auction extraction uh, between skeletal muscle and myocardial muscle, which is great for efficiency. Not so good when that auction supply stops. So you will infarct forty times quicker than you would your leg muscle. Mm. Um, and hence, it's simply the rapid manifestation of outstripping of um, demand and supply. So when we're in the catheter lab and we inflate a balloon, um, one sees ECG changes, ST segment elevation within about five seconds. Mm. Um, so it's extremely rapid. And inflating balloon, you block off the coronary artery. Correct. So you're blocking off diastolic blood flow down the coronary artery. Yeah. So it's extremely rapid. And, you know, there's a cascade of things that happen when you're ischemic. Um, one of the one of the first things is, is impairment of relaxation in the muscle tissue by the next things the ECG changes the next things the symptoms, mm. um, but it happens very quickly mm. and cell death happens very quickly. Okay, so in angina, your the supply of oxygen to the cardiac muscle is adequate up until the point you're doing something exertional. Yeah. Your heart beats a bit faster, there's a bit more metabolic demand, and suddenly that fixed supply because you've got a, a, a stenosis in the coronary artery isn't yeah. can't get enough oxygen to the muscle becomes yeah. ischemic and it hurts correct yeah i i couldn't have put a better myself. i should just sit here and have coffee john <laughs> so the um and it's generally recommend generally thought to be that you need a 70 percent area stenosis um to have symptoms on exertion yeah uh which and coronary angiography is a very blunt tool there are more specific ways of assessing that we now have a, a thing called the pressure wire which we can briefly touch on if we have time um, but it's generally at 70% area stenosis you are likely to get exertional chest pain okay so i think that brings us quite nicely onto investigations yeah so if someone has these symptoms you are strongly suspicious of it being typical or atypical stable or unstable angina yeah. and now you need to demonstrate that was some investigations to support your, support your diagnosis. Sure. So, um, so coming back to the earlier statement, it's extremely difficult. And I think in primary care, it's particularly difficult. And I think one has to rely primarily on clinical judgment to a large extent because the investigations themselves aren't perfect. Mm. Um, the, the most important thing to reiterate is if you have a good, reasonable clinical suspicion of unstable angina, that person should be admitted to hospital for assessment and stabilisation. As, as an emergency there as, then? Or? As an emergency there yeah, then. Like a blue light... Yeah, I mean, I think they can they can let them go home perhaps to pick up a, a nightgown, but by and large, you know, right. if they've had chest pain within the last 24 hours, well, in fact, one could stretch it back a little bit, if they've had crescendo angina on and off several days. Really crescendo sh- is what in this So context? crescendo is just a, a rather l- loose uh, description of worsening chest pain. We've already said that at the onset of those symptoms, one could label them as being as having unstable angina but frequently we can talk about the pathophysiology is such that you often have a a period of of worsening instability of symptoms over several days Mm. culminating in a large heart attack Mm. um so if you see somebody in primary care who gives a good history of on and off chest pain they thought it might be angina they thought it might be indigestion now they're not so sure they really should be admitted to hospital for assessment Mm. um and that's where you don't need any tests you just need to have um assessment in hospital which we'll talk about for people who, and then there's an inevitable uh, tension then as to at what point do you stop worrying about unstable symptoms and describe this as being stable. Yeah. But I think if someone gives a history over weeks or months of symptoms that you think might be angina, they're the kind of people who would be suitable for outpatient assessment. And there's a there's a definite grey area and overlap, and one has to play it safe. Uh, if you think that this is unstable angina, admit them. If you think it's you want to investigate chest pain that's been going on for a bit longer and mm-hmm. appears to be stable... 
Um, in the UK, there's a rapid access chest pain clinic. There's similar services all around the world. And they've been very strongly investigated and ratified. But the system's changed in the UK recently. So the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence, Health, Health and Care Excellence, um, has recently changed the rules. And you can summarise it by saying we had a very heavy reliance on exercise treadmill testing, mm -hmm. exercise ECG, and that's now been very much demoted in the guidelines because um, there's a rec recognition that exercise treadmill testing is imperfect and has at best a third miss rate. So the sensitivity, sensitivity and specificity at best are about 67 to 70%. Right. So you're automatically missing a third of people. Um, you've, you know, you're tight. Two errors a third. And if you were to look at certain subsets like middle-aged women with less typical symptoms, it's 50% sensitivity. Right. So you might as well toss a, a coin. coin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so nowadays the, the guidelines are such that, as we mentioned earlier, if you're over 70, particularly if you're male, or you're, you, if you're over 70, typical symptoms, you go straight for coronary angiography. Um, if you're in the middle in terms of your pretest probability of risk, uh, the Probably there's a quite complex flow algorithm that the nurses are excellent at administering, but many more people now are being sent for CT coronary angiography, mm. which is a very good test. It's, we can talk about that in more detail, but that essentially looks for calcium in the arteries. If you have zero calcium, something called the Agatston score in your arteries, you, with a 99% probability, don't have significant coronary artery disease. There's always small amounts of calcium associated. Um, and you can also do functional testing. So that's an anatomical test. You can do myocardial scintigraphy or myocardial perfusion scanning. That's got its downsides as well, but that's a useful test. The, the major differentiation between exercise testing and those two tests we just mentioned, CT coronary angiography and myocardial perfusion scanning, is that exercise tests, there's a 1 in 10,000 risk with it. You have to get sweaty and put your trainers on. Mm -hmm. but you don't, quite hard work, aren't Quite it? hard work. Yeah. You don't get irradiated. Yeah. Everything else, pretty much, you get irradiated. Um, and it's just worth mentioning that myocardial perfusion scanning is the equivalent of around 600 chest x-rays, so mm. it shouldn't be done repetitively in young women, for example, because of the stochastic risks involved over time. Um, you can have a thing called a vitamin stress echocardiogram, which is an excellent test, but very operator-dependent and time-intensive. So nowadays, if you come to rapid access chest pain clinic, you'll either go direct for coronary angiography mm. if you're very high risk, or you'll have some form of non-invasive imaging. There's still a role for exercise treadmill tests, but it's, it's not as much as was done before. Okay. Okay. So, and and the calcium on the CT—that's calcium in the atherosclerotic plaque. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a it's a byproduct of chronic inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hope you enjoyed part one of the podcast on angina. In part two, Damien is going to tell us about treatment options for angina, including medical angioplasty and the role of cardiac surgery, as well as the impact on people's lives of a diagnosis of angina.